How about our youth band leading us in worship today? Seriously. Good job, y'all. Mm-hmm. Really, really good. Wow. Well, if you have been with us at all here at First Baptist during 2022, then you know that our theme this year is re dot, dot, dot. And what we're about this year at our church is we are evaluating, exploring, studying various re-words that are in the New Testament. We're also exploring the re-words in our theological vocabulary. And so we'll continue that journey today. If you have your copy of the New Testament, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 1 here in just a few minutes. So I'll invite you to that text. And so this spring, our re-word is reconcile. And here's our plan for the spring over these next few Sunday mornings as we study together reconciliation. Today I'll share a message entitled Replenished by God's Comfort. Next Sunday morning, God's glory restored and then redirected by faith and then reconciled and then reoriented through generosity. And then the final message in this series will be renewed in weakness. Let's begin with just a definition and understanding, if you will, uh, of the word reconcile. In the New Testament, the Greek word that is underneath the family of English words associated with reconciliation. So the word reconcile or reconciliation is found numerous times in the New Testament. But the Greek word that's underneath those English translations is actually taken from the accounting industry where coins are exchanged and accounts then would be reconciled. And so the writers of the New Testament took that Greek word, katalasso is the Greek word, and a couple of variations of it, which just means reconcile. A debt has been paid, if you will. And that word is primarily used in the New Testament to address the reconciliation that we experience because of God's activity in Christ. And so we are separated from God and we need to be reconciled to God. And so the New Testament teaches us that it is through the cross of Jesus, his death and his resurrection that we now can be reconciled to God. And the focus of the New Testament is really on that particular process and what God has accomplished in Christ. However, the New Testament also teaches that we need to be reconciled to each other. So reconciliation is not just a theological truth, a spiritual reality that has to do with us and God. It is that. But also it has this idea that you and I need to be reconciled to each other. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but human relationships can be tricky because people are funny. Not y'all, but people that y'all know. People can be really sensitive, can't they? Not, not, not y'all. I'm talking about people that you have to deal with. They can get their feelings hurt. They can get angry. And trying to be reconciled can be really dicey. True? You know, 
history is filled with some unreconciled relationships. And they can cause a lot of damage where there's a lack of reconciliation. Um, For example, the War of the Roses, the House of York and the House of, I would say Lancaster, that would be the Alabama way of saying that, but Lancaster, I think, in England. The War of the Roses lasted for um, about 40 years. And it was just these two families, these two houses, many bloody battles, a lot of people died. In fact, two princes from these houses were in prison and they both were put to death until the war finally ended. There's the famous unreconciled relationship between Queen Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots. Both of them claimed rights to the British crown. They were cousins. They never actually met in real life, but they were unreconciled. Queen Elizabeth brought an end to the unreconciled relationship when she had Mary put to death in 1587. So that's one way to resolve an unresolved relationship. Um, Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, they had an unreconciled relationship that finally ended in a duel, July the 11th, 1804, uh, where Aaron Burr actually fatally wounded Alexander Hamilton. You know, Alexander Hamilton is one of those guys that many people in America have totally forgotten about until they wrote a play about him uh, that's been on Broadway. Now everybody knows Hamilton. Um, Then where I'm from in the Deep South, one of our most famous feuds was between two families the Hatfields and McCoys. You remember what their dispute was over the original fight, 1878? A hog is where it started. And uh, which obviously justifies a lot of killing and a lot of hate and a lot of anger for decades. Um, then of course, there's the famous unresolved relationship between Edison and Tesla. And that was about D.C. A.C. Y'all remember that story? And those two men never reconciled their differences. In fact, Tesla would leave Edison and go to work for Westinghouse, the chief rival of Thomas Edison. One of the, they, one of the unresolved relationships that you and I have talked about in the past is between Adolf and Rudolf Dassler, these two brothers who started a tennis shoe business, a racing shoe business, and um, they, their main break came when Jesse Owens wore their shoes in the Berlin Olympics, 1936. But the two brothers fell out with each other, lived in the same town their whole lives, and they were no longer able to get along with one another. And so Adolf Dassler, his nickname was Addy, he started his own company, and he called it Addy Das, his first name and last name. We don't pronounce it Addy Das, though. We call it Adidas. And so he established his own factory, producing his own racing shoes. His brother couldn't get along with him, so he started another factory on the other side of town and named his racing shoe the Puma. And so these two factories and, and industries exist in the same town, connected to the same family, and they have nothing to do with each other. It's a very famous, interesting story. You can read about it on the internet. It's interesting. Um, then this last week, uh, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. He is a professor at New York University. He has written a very fascinating, insightful article that I would recommend to you to read. It's in the Atlantic. It's how it was published originally. And he, um, he points out what's happened to us over the last decade in America. And I'll give you the title of the article. I'm going to do it reluctantly because it uses a word that we don't use at our house. Um, 
But here's the title of the article, Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Has Been Uniquely Stupid. We don't use the word uniquely at our house. We call it the U word. <clears throat> so anyway, um, but Jonathan Haidt, he is, he's a, a brilliant thinker. Here's what's fascinating about him. This article, he uses the Tower of Babel as his core metaphor. Fascinating because Haidt is an atheist. And yet, what's interesting about him is he has a lot of respect for the role of religion. He's a social historian, social psychologist, uh, has a degree from Yale, PhD from, I think, from the um, University of Pennsylvania. But he's a great, great writer, great thinker. I always am challenged when I read him. But he has pointed out what's happened in America over the last decade. And he outlines red America and blue America. And... And how social media has affected the development of those two realities. Here's what he says. He says, we are disoriented. We're unable to speak the same language, hence the Tower of Babel image. Or recognize the same truth. We're cut off from one another and the past. As a social historian and psychologist, he outlines the three factors or forces, if you will, that help keep societies like ours, democracies, republics, alive and allow them to function. He says those three forces are what he calls social capital, those small organizations that we have across our nation, strong institutions and shared stories. He says those three factors have been proven throughout history to hold societies together. He says social media over the last decade has weakened all three of those and put our very way of life in peril. It's a fascinating take on what's happening in America today. Russell Moore, who's one of my favorite Christian ethicists, has been responding to Jonathan's research, interviewed him on his podcast this week, and has taken hate's research and applied it to what's happening in churches across America. And I would tell you, uh, the take that both uh, Jonathan and Russell have shared with me to me have been incredibly insightful. On top of that, we've had this pandemic. And so perhaps this last week you picked up one of these booklets, the Reconcile booklet. It, uh, it kind of has the uh, apple pie, mom and apple pie feel to it as we talk about these recipes for reconciliation but in this booklet, there's some really good theological information. I would point you to it. In fact, Katie Hodges uh, has written uh, about this whole idea of the, of the effect of the pandemic on us. Let me read you what Katie says in this booklet that you can find if you haven't gotten one today. She says, the COVID isolation has left many relationships distant and damaged. More than ever, people are banding together by ideological belief and deeply dividing themselves from those who think differently. By and large, we're a divided people. If we're not careful, we can begin to think this is right or inevitable. We can live mirroring the culture around us and miss the richness of living in God's restorative shalom. I would say thank you, Katie. Great insight. And so as we are facing all of these challenges, as I was preparing last July for this year, I felt led to ask us to address this whole topic of reconciliation. As the people of God, we are certainly the most, most equipped group of people in our society 
to address reconciliation and live fully into its reality. And that's going to be my challenge to us. We're going to have a biblical text. That'll be 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is going to guide us through this journey. Uh, it is a beautiful letter from the Apostle Paul. Paul had a, 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 a relationship with Corinth that was quite fascinating. Uh, he went there uh, about AD 51 or so. Acts 18 outlines what happens while Paul was there. He spent 18 months in Corinth. Corinth was a, a thoroughly Roman city in the first century. It was established as a Greek city, but it had become thoroughly Roman in its orientation. It was a city that uh, uh, was dominated by the temple of Aphrodite. So there was this massive pagan worship experience there. It was dominated by a sports culture. They held these huge games there. It was incredibly affluent. There were some very wealthy people in Corinth. And it was a place where the gods were worshipped. And the idea was if, if the gods blessed you, it was obvious. You were healthy and wealthy and everything went your way. That was the prominent idea that was taught there. So Paul goes to this cosmopolitan city, an urban context, establishes a church. He leaves and continues his missionary work. Well, when he leaves, some things start to happen in the church at Corinth. Some people come who start teaching things that were different than what Paul taught were undermining his teaching. There were some who saw themselves as greater apostles than him. They didn't necessarily question his apostleship, but they just taught that they were actually superior apostles to Paul. So Paul, um, he actually would, would visit uh, Corinth again. He will, he's going to write them a series of letters. We've, we believe there are at least four of them from Paul. We've lost two of them in antiquity. We have two of them still. First and second Corinthians are the two we still have. But it was, a, it was somewhat of a painful experience for Paul. Here's what's interesting about 2 Corinthians. Paul is in a state of brokenness with the church at Corinth, and he now is trying to reconcile. And 2 Corinthians is written in the middle of that process. So reconciliation hasn't fully happened yet. So we're going to have the chance to read through a letter where reconciliation is being attempted, and they're on a journey together, but it's not complete. There's still a certain level of brokenness and strain and tension in their relationship. And it comes out in this letter. That's why I think it's a fascinating study for us as we think about this topic together. Because it's a real person who's living in real time, who's in a real conflict with real people. And he's trying to help shepherd a process to bring them back together uh, in their relationship with one another. Uh, again, as we prepare for each one of these sermons and times of worship every week, uh, Kurt has written a, written a wonderful introduction to every sermon throughout this whole series in this booklet. I would recommend it to you. But he also writes just a brief word about Corinth. Let me read to you what Kurt has written. He says, God sent a humble, suffering Pharisee with a story about a crucified Messiah into a proud, pleasure-seeking, hero-worshiping, sports-loving, status-oriented pagan community. It is not a question of what could possibly go wrong. It is more a matter of how it could possibly go right. Thank you, Kurt, for that insight. Because here's what we could say today, that the Lord has sent the message about a crucified Messiah into a proud, pleasure-seeking, hero-worshiping, sports-loving, status-oriented community known as Arlington. So how's it going to go in this 21st century? It's a, it's a challenging message then, and now. So with that said, let's look at this text. First, 2 Corinthians, the first page. So just page one. Here's what we're going to do. 
We're going to read through 2 Corinthians over these next few weeks. And every week I'm going to ask you to read the text that I preached from on Sunday morning. And then we'll read another portion of the text. When we get to the end, the last week, we'll read all the sermon texts together that week. And just take a deeper dive into 2 Corinthians. So let's look at what Paul has to say in page 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we're distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. As I said, Paul is in a fractured relationship with this church. They're on a journey together. Paul has actually written a letter. He has visited them. He's gotten news that the tide is turning. The church is turning back toward its affection toward him. But it's not done yet. It's not complete yet. So most scholars say when you read 2 Corinthians, it has the most unusual introduction in all of Paul's letters. Because typically in the introduction to Paul's letters, he thanks God for the church, the recipients of the letter. And he speaks a word of encouragement to them. He doesn't do that in this letter. He speaks a word about what God's doing in his life, not what God has done in their life. So it's a very different introduction. It stands in stark relief to the rest of Paul's writings. Notice what he says. He, he says, he offers this word of praise and blessing, but he talks about what God's doing in him, not what God has done in them. So there's something afoot here. And what's afoot is Paul is establishing himself as the person who has had primary influence in this church and he's trying to bring this church and him back together. And so he is letting them know that God is at work in him. It's a personal word from Paul about what God's doing in his life. He's in the midst of reconciling a, a relationship. And so in this conversation, I want us to learn some valuable truths together as we make our way through this journey. And these are the things I want you to pay attention to as you're reading through 2 Corinthians. Because here's what I'd say about Paul. Paul knew what it meant to be reconciled to God. Paul knew what it meant to be reconciled to his own circumstances. Paul knew what it meant to be reconciled to God's work in his own life. And Paul knew what it meant to be reconciled to other people. So those are the four threads to me that are woven throughout the fabric of 2 Corinthians that form it into a tapestry. So we're going to refer to those throughout this entire journey. And I want you to be paying attention about Paul expressing what it means to be reconciled to God, what it means to be reconciled to your own circumstances, what it means to be reconciled to the work of God in your life, and what it means to be reconciled to one another. And so we're going to look for those truths as we read through this text. So let me just walk you through real quickly some insights connected to that this morning, okay? Here's where I would start. Christian suffering often is the result of faithful living. Paul is honest about his suffering. Here's the, here's the challenge. There were people in Corinth who questioned why Paul suffered so much. So, so why are you suffering so much, Paul? Could it be you have sin in your life? Could it be that you're just weak? You're just, you're just a weak apostle, unlike the apostles that we have living with us right now here in Corinth who are much stronger than you. Well, you know, in other words, the culture of Corinth 
was very influential in this church's life. And the idea that a sure sign of God's blessing is ease. And so what happens when your life is ill at ease? Well, then obviously God must have taken his hand off of your life. This, this must not be God's blessing. Well, Paul is arguing something very different. In fact, Paul is, is exhibiting in his own life that suffering sometimes is just the result of doing what is right. It actually emerges out of faithfulness. And that's Paul's testimony. Paul is going to teach the Corinthians, look, I have been obeying God and because of that, I've been suffering. So the suffering that's come my way is the result of my own faithfulness, not my weakness, not sin in my life. Paul says, you suffer sometimes just because you're obedient to God. In other words, our world, it does not have the same perspective we have. And so our world sometimes lives in ways that are completely opposite to the things of God. And so some of the challenges that are going to come our way, guess what? Those challenges are going to be the result of our faithfulness, not our sinfulness. And so sometimes when we find ourselves in a challenging situation, it just might be that what's happening to us is this is the direct result of us just being obedient to God. So instead of asking yourself when things are troubling and you're challenged by them, sometimes it may have nothing to do with sin or brokenness in your life. It may be happening to you just because you're doing exactly what God wants you to do and it's not always easy to do what God wants you to do. Don't you wish it was easy? I wish I could stand before you today and tell you that following Jesus is really easy. If it were, everybody would be doing it. But I've been doing this too long. It's not always easy. In fact, sometimes the challenge comes just because you're doing what you know is right. So I want to encourage you this morning. If you find yourself in that place, it just might be that it's through your obedience that you're experiencing this challenge. Here's what I would say, though. Only God provides true and deep comfort in the face of affliction. That's Paul's testimony. Did you notice in this text how many times Paul says he'd been comforted? It's almost like you can't hardly read it because it just sounds too redundant. I mean, Paul says, I want to thank God who's comforting me because when I get comfort, that means I can comfort you. And it's the comfort that I get that is going to be a comfort for you. And while we're being comforted, we just know God's a God of comfort. So he brings comfort to us so that we can be You're like, dude, pick another word. <laughs> well, guess what? He's trying to communicate something to us. In fact, uh, Scott Haifman, who is a, a professor at Wheaton, he's written a commentary on 2 Corinthians. Let me read you what he says. He says, the concept of comfort, that's periclesis, and comforting, parakaleo, those are the two Greek words, he says, occurs 10 times in this short passage. The density of this concentration is even more striking in view of the fact that of the approximately 31 times these two words are found with this meaning in the New Testament as a whole, 25 of them are in Paul's writings. Of these 25 occurrences, 17 occur in 2 Corinthians and 10 of them in this short introduction. If Paul is an apostle of comfort within the New Testament, then 2 Corinthians is the letter of comfort and 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7 is the paragraph of comfort. Well, in other words, Paul's ideas have been condensed in this introduction. And he wants you to know that God has brought great comfort to him and only God can do that. And so I don't know where you are in your journey. But here's what I would tell you. If you find yourself in a place of challenge right now, the last thing you need to do 
is turn your back on God. Because he's the one that is going to be your true source of comfort. This is the time of all times to turn your face toward him. Because this is where he does his best work. (laughs) He brings comfort in the midst of our affliction and our suffering. Now here's what we want him to do. We want him to just get rid of it. That's what we want. When we turn our face toward him, our expectation is that he's going to change the circumstance. But here's what I'd tell you about God. More often than not, my experience with God is this. He may not do anything about my circumstance because what he's actually doing is working in me. And so his comfort comes sometimes in the face of these circumstances that may not change. But the change happens in me. And it's powerful. That that leads me to this. Affliction can lead to strengthening of our faith rather than diminishing our trust in God. In other words, when you are challenged, when that's where you find yourself, what can happen, instead of your faith being diminished, it can actually be strengthened. And you can learn to trust him even more deeply than you ever thought possible. It's during those hard days, those dark days, that's when the Lord does some great work in us. You know, in all these years I've been following Jesus, I've been following him a long time. I became a follower of Christ when I was a senior in high school. And I've been following the Lord the rest of my life. I've had some great days. I wake up every morning thinking this may be the very best day of my life. And the last thing I'm going to do is be in a bad mood on the best day of my life. My wife loves it about me that I just have that every morning. That's how I wake up every day. This could be it. This, this just, hey, you know what? Today, I don't know what's going on today. This may be the day. But you know what, y'all? I've had some sad days. I've had some dark days personally and in ministry. I've had some seasons where I've wondered, Lord, is this really, is this really what's supposed to be happening? Where I've questioned everything. But you know what, y'all? I would tell y'all this as a word of testimony. It's during those dark days those hard days where God has done his greatest work in me. It's where I have found him to be a God of comfort. Not because he changed circumstances, but it's in those dark days where I found him to be a God of comfort where he has changed me. He's left a mark on me. And you know what it's done to me? It's made me a better person. It's made me a a better dad, a better husband, a better pastor. A better poppy. I don't know about that. I'm a pretty good poppy pretty all the way. Don't you think, Ada? I'm pretty good already at that. Um, but the Lord has worked in me during some of the most difficult times in my life. And it's left a mark on me. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, it's in my suffering. I have found comfort. And that comfort is powerful. One other thing real quickly. When we're replenished by God's comfort, we then can be used by God to bring comfort to others. See, that's how it works, y'all. <laughs> it's when I'm replenished, then I can in turn be used by God to be a comfort to you. I, I can walk with you. I, I can listen to your story. And I can hear what's happening to you. And I can empathize with you because you see, I've walked through some dark days. And it just may be that somewhere in our journey, 
if I'm there with you, you may ask me, you ever been through anything like this? And often I'm able to say, oh my goodness, have I been through something like that? Let me tell you how God ministered to me when it was like this for me. And guess what that does? That brings comfort to you. Isn't that what Paul says? Paul says, this comfort that I'm getting, it's actually for y'all because God is gonna use it in this journey that we're on together because that's what God does. He uses these things for his glory. Now, let me tell you real quickly why it's so important, y'all. Why is Paul making this argument? Well, I'll tell you why. Because something huge is at stake in Corinth, way bigger than Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. Here's what's at stake in Corinth. If they don't believe this, that God can use suffering and trouble and affliction to accomplish his greater glory, then how are you going to explain a crucified Messiah? In other words, the very truth of the gospel is at stake here. And what Paul is saying is, what you need to know is, God used even the cross for his glory. Because God can use affliction and suffering for the greater good. The Bible says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. And so Paul is making an argument here because the truth of the gospel is at stake. Well, our world needs that same crucified Messiah. Amen? This culture, as broken and as fragmented as it is, as a matter of fact, I would contend that's the only answer. The only answer is the humility that we find in Jesus. He is the embodiment of seeing God's glory on display through suffering and affliction. And our message has not changed. We're just like Paul. We still preach Christ and him crucified. Praise his name. So our prayer as we go through this journey, y'all, is that you will be reconciled to God. We hope that's already happened. But also that God will give you the grace to be reconciled to your life. He'll give you the grace to be reconciled to what he's doing in you. And he'll give you wisdom and courage to be reconciled to others. May it be so. Let's pray together. Well, Father, today we we are grateful for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth revealed as we've studied and continue to study your word. But the truth is going to be revealed to us as we walk through 2 Corinthians. I want to thank you for it. And I pray, Lord, that we will honor you as we journey together and that we will see your reconciling hand at work in us and through us. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.